I'm here today with Caitlin. Uh, Caitlin is a PhD student at Loughborough University and thank you very much Caitlin for coming to talk to us today on the Listening Society podcast. Um, if you could just introduce yourself briefly and then I was thinking you could get started with a conversation about Kings and your time here. Yeah, yeah. So my name is Caitlin. As uh, Christina just said, I'm in the final year of my PhD. Um, so exciting stuff going on. I um, currently research challenging situations in the coach-athlete relationship with a specific focus on the deselection and selection process um, in high-performance sports. So when a coach has to come in and give the news to an athlete that um, they are not um, potentially going to the Olympics, Paralympics, World Cup, World Tour, something like that. So how um, we can help coaches and athletes better manage that process from a behavioral um, standpoint and that interaction standpoint between the coach and the athlete. Amazing. Thank you very much. Um, so just to start with a general discussion about Kings then, um, being a Kings alumna, um, I wanted to ask you, how was your experience um, as an international student at Kings? Oh, I absolutely loved it. So when I came to Kings in my master's in 2016, that was the first time that I'd properly been out of the U.S. Um, I've gone like across the border into Mexico for like a day with my parents when I was younger, but that arriving in London was the first time I've ever fully been outside of the United States besides just a day trip with my parents. So it was very overwhelming. It was a bit scary. Uh, a Kansas girl all of a sudden in London with the tube and the big red buses and taxis going everywhere. So it was very daunting at first and I had a moment where I was like did I make the right decision um, but I think the great thing about Kings is there is a big international community so I found quite quickly that I was not the only one away from home that I was not the only person from the United States um, I was in Orchard Isle Iris Brook house so right next to Guy's Hospital in the Shard and at the time when I was there, it was just postgraduate housing, um, mainly for international students. So right away, I was already with a group of people that were away from home, that were international students, that were all extremely friendly. So as an international student, I loved it. I didn't feel like the oddball out or the only one that's not from England or the UK or London. We were all in the same boat. So I think we all kind of bonded quite quickly as... No one had really been to London before, um, besides maybe a, a, a holiday here and there. But I really enjoyed it as an international student. Felt very welcomed. Yeah, I think that's what strikes me about Kings as well. Before I came, um, I had no idea just how international it was, and kind of how many people from different kind of corners of the globe came together. And I think that's what makes it really unique as a university, as opposed to say any other university in the UK. Um, so. And that kind of leads you on to my next question. Um, what did you find unique about studying in London as opposed to studying anywhere else in the world or like Loughborough where you are now? The fact that you are in this massive city. Um, I think, especially in the universities that I went to in the US or even here at Loughborough, is you very much have the campus. You know, you get on the campus, you're in this nice little bubble. It's just university students, your lecturers, coaches, whatever. You know, then you walk into town and there's quite a separation. Um, Kings, it's very much integrated. You know, the, the buildings and the campuses 
or not the campuses, but all the buildings and stuff are spread all over. So as you're walking into campus, or I keep saying campus, I guess it's a, a spread out network of buildings. As you're walking to your class or lecture, you know, you're walking with business people, you're walking onto the Strand, you're walking across, you know, you know, London Bridge, and you're seeing um, the London Eye, and you're seeing all these amazing things, and you feel, I felt much more integrated into the city and much more grown up. I felt less like a student and more like I'm an adult living in a big city, mingling with people that are not at university going to work. And I quite enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, I think it's very inspiring walking past like big buildings um, or people on their way to work in the city. It's very, um, yeah, very inspiring. I think for me, that's what struck me last year. My kind of first time walking onto campus was um, was definitely that element of things. Um, but this kind of also leads me on to my next question. Um, did you have a favourite place on campus or in general, like the city? Um, well, my favourite place on campus was, oh, I really enjoyed uh, the guy's library. Um, I, I don't know why, but I really enjoyed that library. Maybe it was because it was a two minute walk from where I lived and so there would always be a group of us you know going over there to study to to work together um there was always people in there that you knew and the medical students are based there so I found it really inspiring as they're you know study frantically 24 7 um to be around them because they're obviously studying very hard um one of my favorite places in London quite a sentimental place it's called St Christopher's Pub it's a hostel and a pub, and it's right um, by where we live next to Borough Market, and it was just a place that all of us would just end up at quite frequently, um, randomly throughout the week and on the weekends, and so had many a good nights there, and it's a, a short walk home, but I really enjoy that place a lot. That sounds great. Um, so um, now to kind of go into discussion of what you studied, um, um throughout your kind of academic career so far um to lead into this um I wanted to ask how did what you studied at King's lead you on to what you're now studying um at Loughborough yeah so kind of an inter interesting journey um in my undergrad I studied psychology a major in psychology with a minor in behavioral neuroscience my original route was I want to be a clinical psychologist I want to work with um, veterans, um, anyone that has served in the military with PTSD or any sort of uh, trauma from serving um, in the military. And that was my original route. I always had an interest in it. I, I don't have any personal connection to the military. I don't come from a, a big military family or, or anything like that. And I didn't have any specific experience with military military research or any personal experience. So um, I found the program at King's, which is the war and psychiatry program. I, uh, you know, sent off my application. It was my only application to a university abroad. The rest were in the U.S. I got accepted into King's and one other school. And on a whim, I was just like, I'm going for it. This is the one opportunity I can go abroad. And, you know, it's only one year. So if I absolutely hate it, I come back to the U.S. after. So I did my year at King's 
um, the story met someone stayed um, and I had a little bit of a time between my times at Keynes and when I started my PhD at Loughborough and it was it was the first time in my life where I wasn't playing volleyball I wasn't studying and I got a chance to just focus on what I wanted to do and based off my experiences as an athlete and um, those around me I decided I wanted to move that trauma focus that the focus on you know things that that go wrong or that are bad or when people have negative feelings or emotions as a result of an experience and shift that more into sport because I have a personal connection and it is something that could drive me you know remind myself that you know I had this experience but now I can do something about it to help make sure that um, other people don't go through that so yeah I mean I'm sure, you know, there is, you know, overlaps between high high performance sport and military, but I just found that that personal connection in sport, um, and who knows, maybe down the road, I will slowly shift back towards the military, but I just found that, you know, when I had a moment to myself, that that's really what I wanted to do and wanted to spend the rest of my life researching. Yeah, so in terms of your um, studies um, of kind of the ethics and moral stances of sending um, especially young people off to war. Um, how has your research um, kind of delved into that? And um, yeah, what have you found, I guess? Yeah, so definitely there's always, you know, when we think of war, we think of, of young young people getting sent off um, 18 years old to go, to go fight a war. Um, yeah, and I know, I can't remember the spe- specific numbers, but um, the U.S., in terms of the average age that we deploy people um, overseas, is younger than what the U.K. does. Um, so you look at that, you take a, an 18-year-old who can't legally drink in the U.S., who can't legally consume alcohol, but yet they're allowed to get deployed um, overseas and be put in situations that... Um, you know, in a perfect world, nobody would have to be put in and and make decisions that, once again, in a perfect world, no one should ever have to make. And so um, in terms of what I researched, we didn't research so much the age, but more what happens when people come back and whether um, sending people off at such a young age with little training, with little, not just physical preparation, but mental preparation and resources um, tools for them to have so when they come back they can adjust. Um, is, is sending someone off at 18, 19, 20 even, is that ethical to do? Um, but also I understand that um, sometimes there may not be a choice um, in terms of numbers or what the country's leader feel are necessary, but I guess if it was my choice it would be a much higher, uh, you know, a higher number and let people develop resources for themselves, um, coping, you know, financial resources. So when they come back, maybe they have a bit more of a network that they've been able to build up to help them transition back into civilian life, which is much different um, than being deployed and different. You know, you're asked to do things in in the military that aren't acceptable in social um, situations or, you know, in everyday society. So yeah, it would be, it would be in a perfect world, no war, um, and keep that age or bump that age up. Mm, yeah, I think completely. And I think, I suppose, as the um, kind of, as warfare changes, so does uh, the psychology of war, like, I guess, 
the implications that we have to think about now are very different from say a century ago so um in terms of like the um i guess mental illnesses that may arise after war and ptsd have you done any um research around the um the role of kind of guilt or ptsd after war yeah yeah you know there is there is that you know i'm not going to speak for anybody in the military you know i don't have that experience but yeah that there's that survivor's guilt so if you're um, out and you know obviously you will develop close relationships with people you will get to know people that you're serving with and you get put in a situation where one of them gets injured and, and loses a limb or has a se severe brain injury or, or even dies um, but yet you make it home um, to your family and friends there's that um, question of you know why did that not happen to me did I do enough was it my mistake? Could I have done more for um, that person or those people um, that I was with? Um, and then, yeah, um, like I said, I'm not going to speak for anyone, but we do ask people to do things in the military that, you know, were brought up in society to say, you don't hurt, you don't harm, you don't kill, you know, um, peace, peace, peace. But then, you know, we send these people off to do things um, that may require them to fire a weapon at somebody or to defend themselves. Um, and then you come back to society and everything that you hear is, you know, don't kill, don't harm, fighting's bad, you get arrested if you get in a fight, obviously um, you get sent to prison, um, things like that. So it's, it's that contradicting of, I go over here, I do all these things, and then I come back into a society that, if they were to happen in that society, they would otherwise be condemned and then there's also the the social side of it so you know the, the big um case in point or example is the vietnam war um we, you know despite what what people believe about it or why we went to war why not we went to war the just the social reaction so as a soldier you know you've gone over you've done your duty and now you come back and there's to your home country and people are very very angry at you and maybe they're really angry at the leaders, but you're a physical symbol of what they're angry about. And um, that can be obviously very difficult for somebody who now you come home and you're being ostracized for something that, you know, you were doing your duty and that you probably have no control over as um, we know wars and stuff um, happen from people, um, you know, higher up that aren't usually on the ground fighting this battle. So there's definitely that social element on whether how um, your home country is reacting to that war will also be how they receive you when you come home. Mm, yeah, it is really interesting how you're talking about the complete shift from, I guess, like having to shift your whole moral and ethical, like the whole moral and ethical framework from almost like one reality to another. And it's, I can imagine that is incredibly um incredibly hard um for somebody to get to do i mean um and this kind of leads me on to the next um point and that was to ask you about um the psychology of killing um in terms of like are we as humans capable of killing and good people doing bad things and i believe this is the lucifer effect um if you could kind of talk to us about that that would be amazing <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so definitely, like, you know, I've said before, we're asking people to do things 
and put them in situations that, you know, like I said, in a perfect world, no one ever gets put in and they never have to be asked to choose between themselves and someone else or protecting themselves and, and, and hurting someone else. And yeah, there is this really interesting book called The Lucifer Effect. And it's basically about how good people do bad things. And um, not necessarily maybe that they're bad, but they're in a situation where um, that environment supports that behavior or they're given almost no choice. And, you know, the big example is um, the Nazis in Germany. You had neighbors turning in their, 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 yeah, people turning in their neighbors and their otherwise people they've lived next to for years or people working in concentration camps and, you know, I'm not defending um, people that did that by any means, but you look at how people were put in situation, that situation, and then you look how look at how some people have acted accordingly. You know, there's some people that hit people, you know, they hid their friends and family, and then there were some people that, that handed them over. And um, so you look at how that situation, that circumstance, and then you look at the decisions they make. So up until that point, you would probably never guess, you know, that those people would do that. But then when this um, situation comes, you know, I have no idea how I would act in in war or in a conflict or in a civil war. I, I have no idea. And I don't think there really is a way to know how you would react until you're put into, into that situation. And I don't know if there's any amount of, of preparation for having to commit, you know, an act that will have a long-term effect on, on you, your psyche, and on the person you did it to. And I don't, I mean, I know, you know, militaries have really robust training systems, but, but how do you reenact um, killing or taking someone's life or severely hurting somebody um, to the point they can't walk again? I, I, ethically, obviously, ethically, you cannot um, mimic that in a training situation without doing some seriously unethical um, things. So, yeah, it's, I think circumstance and the situation that people are put in has a lot to do with it. And I think it's very quick and easy to judge, oh, I would do this, I would do that. Um, but until you're put in that situation, I think it's very hard to know what you would do. Mm. I think partly in a sense that makes, uh, that's what makes philosophy and the psychology of war so interesting to study because, it is partly unknown, and I think if all these questions were answered, then I guess we wouldn't really be here speaking. Um, but, yeah, completely. Um, yeah. Um, and in terms of, have you done any um, research or work on the psychology of terrorism as well? Yes, yeah, so I wrote one paper about um, the psychology of terrorism or terrorists, and there was this original belief that specifically with suicide bombers, they were mentally ill. Um, you know, everybody thought, well, of course, they're, they're, you know, killing themselves for a religion or an idea or a, a manifesto. And of course, they're mentally ill. They have to be. People that do these things have to be mentally ill. And they found out that it's, it's not a mental illness. These people are otherwise educated. They have families. They have spouses. They have jobs. And it's this belief system. It's it's belonging to this, this group or this belief system that makes them feel 
um, wanted or belong to is now they're they're in a group, and so it, it's not this they're schizophrenic or they're mentally ill, and so now they do something really drastic. And not to say they can't be mentally ill, um, but they are otherwise sane people who have this really strong core belief system that then they act on. They they decide this is what. I believe to be true, and this is what I'm going to do to further that cause, further that belief system, or X, Y, Z. And um, just to go on to uh, another point as well now, so in the 21st century, um, I think last time we spoke, you mentioned about the well, the changing nature of warfare, and now um, we're experiencing different types of I guess um soldiers and in this case we have the 21st century like drone pilots and they're all in war and the psychological effects of this nine to five job so kind of um moving this completely different um kind of paradigm like shift of reality into like the home and the everyday life um so I was I was wondering if you were able to talk about um that yeah, of course. So yeah, the 21st, 21st century has obviously changed a lot of things, um, not just for war, but the way the rest of the world works. Um, you know, there's the cyber warfare, all those types of things. But yes, drones are um, being used and they can be operated from, um, you know, say the U.S. is operating in another country, that drone can be operated from a base in the U.S. Um, so then it changes the dynamic for, to where you know, you, you work on base, you do your shift or however it's set up, and then you, you leave base and you can go home and see your family and your friends, whereas maybe you were asked to do something that um, ended someone's life or damaged buildings and structures that now those people, their life is completely altered and changed, but yet you get to go back and see your family. You're still on the protection of your home country you're still whether you stay on base or you go home you're you're home you're in your home country you're not deployed um into a different country with lots of unknowns so i think it'd be very easy for people to say oh well you know how can people develop you know they're they're at home they're safe they're not in this you know area where they have to physically um commit and act and you know they're safe at home but it's still an act where they're flying a drone they're seeing these people um from way up in the sky and then they're they're having to you know i don't know exactly how drones work but essentially quote unquote hit a button and then that decision has been made and then they can see the repercussions of it so i think even if there's physical distance it doesn't equate to um, emotional distance. I think, you know, just because you're physically far away does not mean that you're emotionally far away as well. Mm. I think, in a sense, it brings up a whole new range of um, problems and psychological considerations to um, to consider. Um, how do you say that kind of, um, you know, carrying out these as, as you said like to press a button or however it works I don't know either how it works but um to then be doing that and then to come home and and see your family or to go and see your friends and um how this would affect somebody um 
how do you, how would you say like in what kind of psychological sense does this kind of affect these people yeah so definitely there's that element of guilt of I'm at home and I'm safe um you know maybe I have friends or even family that have been deployed and they're in a war zone where um you know they only get to speak to their family once a month once a week um you know they're missing out on family things but yeah I'm home on U.S. soil um where I'm safe and um I'm still serving my country, but I'm at home um, and wherever home is, um, whether it's on base or you're allowed to live with your family. So that um, element of, you know, I'm home being safe. And then also that element of guilt of maybe I just ended someone's life and now they can't see their kids or, or now a kid can't see their, their parent. But I know my kids and family are safe. I can go see them. I can get on the phone with them right away. Um, we're in the same time zone. And you're doing this a lot more shifting back and forth. Instead of just being over in this element for a long time um, with people in a similar situation, you're now back and forth in that element. And are can humans change back and forth constantly? Because that's a huge emotional psyche jump that you're having to make more to civilian life, civilian life to war. Whereas um, it would be interesting to see long-term what the effects are because it's, um, you know, it's relatively new in the sense of how long warfare has been going on. So you're looking at people jumping from one end of the spectrum to the other constantly. Mm. And I guess, you know, if it's your everyday full-time job, it's something that maybe, you know, you would, you'd have for, I don't know how many years, but I guess a war or the duration of maybe like going out to war would last much less time in duration to say your full-time job being one of these um, drone um, pilot soldiers. So that's, that's, I guess, what you raised about not knowing the psychological, the true psychological effects of this. Maybe this is something we won't know for years and years down the line. Yeah, exactly. We need some longitudinal studies to see, you know, not only the short-term effects, but the long-term effects and um, what support and, and care um, needs to be specialized for people that do um, operate drones from their home country and, and being wary that, yes, there is physical distance, but there doesn't mean there's emotional distance from what they're having to do. Mm. Yeah, so um, that kind of concludes my questions that I had prepared about um, your time and studies at King's and um, your studies on the war, war psychiatry and psychology. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to mention? Or um, if not, then I can move on to just a quick question about what you're studying now, or researching yeah. now. No, no, just that... Um yeah, like I said, and I know I studied it, but in a perfect world, I wish there was never a need for it. But um, yeah, more psychological and, um, and support for people, um, not just, just soldiers, but civilians who are affected by that. You know, you look at refugees and asylum seekers who are affected by war. And I think people underestimate how, how much it impacts everyone the repercussions just keep building and building so it's really important um we know how to support people and that we can individualize the care and i know that takes money and resources but um yeah just being um wary of that, that these effects go way beyond um just the soldier um 
and and you know the soldiers it's the families it's the children it's the people that are all all are affected by it yeah and i think even even in a perfect world i, I guess it would be very um relevant to study something like this because i guess at the end of the day it tells you a lot about the fundamental nature of a human being and um it can tell you more about um what we're likely to do in other situations when faced with violence or conflict um you know even if it's not war um or like a small scale i guess <laughs> um yeah, definitely um so i was wondering if you could just tell us briefly about um the what you're studying at the moment with the ethical moral and philosophy philosophical underpinning and underpinning sorry of safe guarding athletes and coaches from poor practice um just to kind of finish off the discussion yeah so there's definitely i think in anything that you study or work there's definitely you know a moral and ethical side so at the base of it um sport should be a safe place for everyone for coaches for athletes for volunteers for spectators for referees it should without a doubt be a place where people can um, reach their potential, strive to reach their potential, um, to challenge themselves physically and emotionally, um, to make friends, to have a social network, um, to create relationships. Um, it should be that for everyone regardless of what level. Um, so to me that's, that's the base of, of what sport is morally and ethically. And I think well, I think there, I do know that there needs to be um, more safeguarding, not just for, for athletes, but also for coaches, because coaches can experience, um, you know, negative things in their sport, whether it's, you know, an athlete can bully a coach. I know we hear a lot about coaches bullying or abusing athletes, but athletes can, and, um, can bully or abuse a coach or, or, you know, show negative behavior to a coach. Or we look at the abuse that referees get and matches when they make a call that the fans aren't happy with. Or we look at, you know, um, how spectators um, in sport and how maybe women don't feel comfortable going to football matches because, you know, of the misogyny and the sexism that goes on. So it should be a safe place for everyone to enjoy no matter the level. So, yes, it's safeguarding for everyone because sport is, is, you, is really amazing and how it can be a place where people can achieve really, really wonderful things. And, you know, you watch people push themselves and achieve things and, you know, or people that have come back from serious injury or illness. But it can also be a place where really, really bad things can happen. Um, case in point, the Larry Nassar um, and USA Gymnastics. You know, the, those young women were supposed to be able to perform without fear and without abuse, and they weren't. I mean, fundamentally, they were failed on the most basic moral and ethical principle that I think exists in sport, that it should be a safe place for everyone, regardless whether you just play on a Sunday match with your mates and then you go have a pint at the beer at the pub or you're trying to make it to, you know, the Olympics. I think that's should underpin all um, all sports in all levels. Thank you, thank you very much. That was very insightful. Um, and last question from me: um, How's your um, participation in volleyball um, inspired you to um, study it from like study sport academically? Um, yeah. yeah. So I grew up playing lots of sports, but I ended up um, pursuing volleyball at, at university and. Um, 
yeah, now that I reflect on it, I I probably didn't have the most healthy relationship with sport. It was very much um, my identity, who I was. I was a volleyball player first, and then I was Kate second, um, which is not a healthy situation um, to put yourself in. Um, but then, um, you know, I was in situations where, you know, you when you're in a high-performance sport, that's almost celebrated. You're the athlete who's at training every day. He's working hard, who pushes themselves to they almost puke, who is maxing out almost every day in the gym, whether they need to or not to. Um, and so I, you know, I had some very, very great experiences in sport. I have some of my, my best friends are from playing volleyball. Um, I learned a lot um, from them. I've learned a lot from coaches. Um, I also had, you know, an experience that was very detrimental to me. And it really was the reason that I am doing this. You know, at the time, I didn't want to touch it. I, you know, it happened. I moved on. I didn't want to do anything about it. I thought, well, I'm not a high-performance athlete. I don't have this, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm high-performance in the sense I've, I've played in the U.S., but I'm not, um, I don't have this platform. I don't have this major, um, I'm not a, this, Olympic Olympian athlete where I can get on my Instagram and tell my story and have people listen to me if I were to choose to do that um so I thought well what can I do you know there's there's plenty of other people speaking out about it what can I do about it and then it was when I kind of had my time off um between my master's and my PhD that um I thought well I'm good at academia I enjoy academia maybe there's something I can do with that to help. And then I found uh, your mom, uh, Sophia, um, Professor Sophia Jowett, and then I found Dr. Daniel Rind, and what their research did really aligned with an impact that I wanted to make in sport um, to hopefully help um, people not go through the same situation as me. And we're humans, no one's perfect. Um, but just because, like I said, I think, everyone should have the opportunity to have um, an amazing time to push themselves. It's not going to be easy when you're pushing yourselves, but it should be without um, abuse, without bullying, without harassment. And so it was a situation that ended up changing my whole career path and ended up having me stay in the UK. Here I am five years on. Um, but yeah, I think at the time I didn't realize how impactful it would be um, when I decided to use it in a way that's positive, because um, at the time it was very detrimental towards me, to my mental health. I did not, I was not doing well, um, you know, and it's something, to be honest, that I've struggled with until now, until recently, because um, I hadn't quite coped with it. I hadn't been able to get some distance and look at it objectively and come to terms with what has happened, um, you know, and forgive myself you know, because there is that feeling of guilt that I allowed it to happen, you know, I didn't stand up for myself enough, I didn't stand up for my teammates enough, and so it was just, um, yeah, it's been, it's been really an impactful situation that's led me on to doing what I'm doing now. Amazing, um, and what do you think the future holds for you, um, what are your aspirations in terms of where, do, where you go from after your PhD? Oh gosh, if that, if you can answer that. <laughs> um, yeah, I think Daniel and Sophia asked me this question last time we met. I think it's really hard because 
I, I do enjoy academia. I do enjoy um, lecturing, leading tutorials, things like that. But I do also enjoy the more practical side on it where, you know, getting an opportunity to work with teams and coaches. I don't just want to write a paper that sits on Google Scholar and then, you know, people cite it and it's discussed in the academic community. Like, that's great. But I want an opportunity to be able to go out and implement my research and what we've learned from our research to um, create better relationships that make sport better for coaches, athletes, and anybody else that's involved. So I have no idea. Um, you probably know as much as I do what my future holds, but I'm pretty much open to anything. As long as I feel like I'm making an impact and I'm getting to apply my research and, and hopefully make a difference, even if it's in one athlete or coach's life, then that's enough for me. That's incredible. Thank you very much, Caitlin, um, for coming to talk to us today. Um, I hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you very, very much. <laughs> yes, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you.